0: Please remain scanning for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading is going to come out of Ezra. We are in a new book in our sermon series through the Old Testament. We're in a reading plan that takes us through the whole Bible, but we have been preaching primarily through the Old Testament. We have finished up Second Kings. We're skipping over Chronicles and landing in Ezra. We have seen God's people, the kingdom of Israel, divided between what was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. We saw God's judgment on the northern kingdom, which led to their uh, capture by Babylon. And Judah was doing a little bit better, but they were not far behind the northern kingdom Israel. And now Judah has been conquered by the uh, Persians. And so now we are... Uh, skipping over a section known as the exile, where God's people were uh, out in exile from Babylon uh, into, uh, from Assyria to Babylon to Persia. We are skipping over that little part and picking up when they begin to return back to their homeland under the eye of the Persians. And so that's kind of where we are. Just give you a little heads up on where we're coming from this morning. And we're reading about what is actually going to be a second wave of returnees to Judah, specifically to Jerusalem, with a guy named Ezra. And as you can guess, Ezra is the one who wrote Ezra. We suspect he may also be the one that wrote 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. And in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book. And in the English Bible, our Bible is divided between Ezra and Nehemiah, but we believe Ezra also then obviously would have written Nehemiah as well. And so this is. The author, this is the time in Israel's life. And now we read a little bit about Ezra in chapter 7 of Ezra. We're going to read verse 1. I'm going to skip over a few names and finish it out. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkai, And then I'll skip to verse 6 because it's just a bunch more sons of. You can read that on your own time if you like. Verse 6. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants also came to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Today we are observing the Lord's Supper. So kiddos who would normally be invited to go to Kingdom Kids will actually stay in the service. We do that for two reasons. Some of them have been baptized as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and so they uh, can take the Lord's Supper with us today and other kiddos who have not yet made that decision and therefore have not yet been baptized, it's good for them to experience uh, being in the worship service from time to time. It's also good for them to see the Lord's Supper observed and to ask questions and to learn and grow because it is an important part of the life of our church and it was uh, one of what we call the ordination, or ordinances of the Lord Jesus, meaning Jesus ordained it. He's one of the things that Jesus said. He said, take the Lord's Supper and baptize people. That's straight from his mouth. And so we follow those ordinances as a church family. And so we do that today at the end of the service. But before we get to that, I want to just pause and ask, if you would, to pray with me before we dive into the story of God's people in return from the exile. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for this time for us as a church family and for guests of First Baptist Kennedy to come to this place to worship you. God, to fellowship with one another, to pray and talk to you, to grow together as we both sing and open our Bibles and read. God, I'm mindful that you call us not to just be hearers of the word, whether it's the spoken word and prayer or the sung word or the preaching of your word. You, You do not simply call us to be hearers of your word, but you call us to be doers of your word. So we pray to that end, Father, that your Holy Spirit... I would speak through me to us. We would hear what you have to say, and we would put that into action, even today, that we might live to glorify you in everything we do and everything we say. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the big idea that I want us to think about today, which is the subject of what we find going on in the life specifically as Ezra, is spiritual renewal. Like I said, there's been waves that have happened returning God's people from all across the land back to Jerusalem. Some had already come to rebuild, uh, to begin to rebuild the temple. Others have come now to prepare the people to worship. Ezra was in that second group that came to prepare God's people to worship. What he was doing was helping them to be spiritually renewed. And I'm kind of thinking maybe you're like me and that you have times in your life, maybe you're in one right now, where you feel like I could use some spiritual renewal. I don't feel that God is close to me. I don't feel like God hears my prayers. When I worship and sing these songs, my heart, it doesn't feel warm towards God. When I hear the words, Jesus loves me, it doesn't seem to mean as much as it once did. I think all of us, myself included, we go through seasons or times in our life where we need, we need, we need spiritual renewal. We need our life with God to be reignited. Can I just tell you, if that's you, you're in good company. Everyone has gone through that and we see here God's people have gone through that. So Be encouraged by that. Know that you're going through something that all Christians at some point in their life go through, and if you're like me, go through many times, not just once, but multiple times, where you feel the presence of God seems to be missing. The felt presence of God seems to be missing in my life. Not that He's left me. Not that I've lost my salvation. Not that the Holy Spirit has departed from me. None of that would be true. But my felt experience of the presence of God in my life has waned. And I wonder if you've ever felt that before. I know I have. What do we do? Here's the big idea and then we're going to unpack it. When we are spiritually low, we need to make sure that our faithfulness is high. Let me repeat that. When we are spiritually low, meaning we need spiritual renewal in our lives. We need to be reignited by the Holy Spirit to the felt presence of God in our lives. When our spirits are low, when our spiritual life is low, we need to make sure that our faithfulness is high. Because over time, as we are faithful to the Lord... Though our feelings will ebb and flow, over time that faithfulness will lead to a deeper deeper and richer relationship with God. And this is true in other walks of life. If you are married, you know this to be true. If you're married, do you feel as excited and in love with all of those feelings that come with it early on before you got married? Do you still feel that sense of excitement 24-7? No, it kind of wanes. And over time, if you don't attend to that... You can, be, you can kind of get into some trouble there, can't you? Now, what I will say when I'm doing a wedding ceremony is I will tell people, your job is to love your spouse, not with your feelings. Sometimes you can't control those feelings. They come and go. You are to love your spouse in word and deed. Love your spouse with action. And then I always go back to probably, most of you know this, 1 Corinthians 13. That was not written for uh, weddings, but it fits so well. It's the greatest definition of love ever written. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not boast. It does not envy. It doesn't hold grudges. So on and so forth. Love never fails. Now what the apostle Paul was writing about was love in action. And so our faithfulness to our spouse by being loving in action needs to be consistent even as the feelings ebb and flow. Right? It's no different with God. Remember, we we are made in the image of God. Our relationship with God is meant to be that kind of intimate relationship. In fact, it's supposed to be that way so intimately that what we read in Scripture is the relationship between us and God is likened to a relationship between a husband and a spouse. Over and over in Scripture, you see that again and again, that one of the most, if not the most, close relationships two people are to share are within the intimacy of marriage. Our relationship with God is even deeper than that. It's the only human relationship that can come close to explaining that kind of relationship that God should have with His people. So just like in our human relationships, we need to be faithful to love even when we don't feel like we really want to be loving. If we are faithful, over time those feelings of love will grow richer and deeper. And it's the same with God. When we feel spiritually low. When our emotions and our excitement and our thrill aren't there, what do we need to do in those moments? We need to make sure that our faithfulness is high. Now, how do we see this playing out? Not just in Ezra's time as leader over God's people, but also in uh, the leader before him, a guy named Zerubbabel. You can read about him in the first part of Ezra. Once you hit chapter 7... We're learning about how Ezra interacted with God's people as they had returned. He is coming back with a new group of folks to what was known as Judah once the kingdom divided. And so we want to take a look at what we can learn from God's word about the things that cause us to be spiritually low and how we can respond with faithfulness. Okay, So when we're spiritually low, we want to make sure that our faithfulness is high and we want to be a, and part of that is being aware of what makes me spiritually low. What, what brings me down sometimes? What, what are the things that can contribute to a lack of sense of the presence of God in my life? And then what, if anything, can I do about that? And I think we learn two big lessons. from the book of Ezra as a whole, that there are two things playing out in the life of Israel as they have returned to Judah under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Ezra, that contributed to their sense, their lack of of sense that the presence of God is with them. Here's the two things. Distractions and disobedience. Distractions and disobedience. Those are the two things we find in the story of Ezra that contributed to the lack of spiritual uh, depth that Israel was experiencing after they had returned home. So the first one is distractions. Now what we find in this story is, the folks have been gone, they've been in exile something like 70 years. And during that time, some, some of the Jewish folks stayed behind, others were, were in a, what we call the diaspora, they were, they were pushed out to different places. Some, some ran away and escaped to Egypt, others were taken into captivity in, in Babylon. But as they're out there, what happened? Well, the other people who were left—not the Jewish folks, but the other people who, at some point, probably have been conquered or at least uh, had interactions with the Jewish folks, uh, the nation of Israel during that time—well, they rose to power. They they gained some control. They had some say in what was going on. And so, when they see all the Jewish folks coming back, or at least a portion of them—it certainly wasn't all of them—but a portion of them are coming back to set things back up, they got nervous. They got worried. What did they try to do? They tried to distract. Now, in this case, this is the first group that came to build, to begin to build the temple. They began to distract their leader, or try to distract their leaders, Zerubbabel and his followers. So, if you look in Ezra chapter 3, verse 3, we read about that. We read how God's people responded well to this distraction of other people wanting to keep them from doing what they have permission by the Persian king to do, which is to begin to rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And we read that they handle it well to begin with. We read in Ezra 3.3, Despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Both the morning and the evening sacrifices. You keep reading in the very next chapter, Ezra 4.4, we read again that the people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. What were they trying to do? They were trying to distract them from what God had called them to do. God had worked through a foreign king, the Persian kings, to provide this opportunity for them to return home, to rebuild, and they have opposition. Now, we are told in the Bible that we should expect opposition. We should expect that, the, that, the, that we have an enemy who wants to distract us. We have an enemy that is out to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10.10. 10. Peter talks about that this enemy, Satan, is like a roaring lion just looking around for someone, something to devour. You and I, we have a spiritual enemy that wants to distract us from God wants to pull our attention away from god and we can expect that if there's if our enemy is successful in that then we're going to experience some spiritual lows we're just going to experience some spiritual lows if if we allow our enemy to have that kind of success in our lives to distract us and is there no lack of things that our enemy can distract us with One of the great things the enemy likes to distract us with is circumstances. Look around you. Look at what you're going through. Look at your difficulties. It's all up to you to figure it out. It's all up to you to fix it. This is all on you. And look at the resources you have. You can't figure this out. You can't handle this. This is beyond you. See, the enemy, through the voices of those who were discouraging... God's people from continuing the work. That's what they did. They lied to them. They tried to discourage and dissuade them. That's the enemy out there that will come and attack you to keep you distracted from God. But that wasn't the only thing. They also had an enemy within. They, like you and me, are human. And they, like you and me, tend to just get really focused on me. I'm going to get focused on me, and I'm thinking about me, and what I want, and what I need. See, now what happens is eventually uh, those negative voices out in the world around Israel won out with one of the kings of Persia, and the king of Persia put an end to the work before they could complete the temple. They built the altar where they can worship, but they haven't built the temple around it yet, almost like... If you could say they built the stage of the sanctuary, but the walls and the roof weren't up yet, that might be an illustration you can wrap your mind around. But that's what was going on. And so one of the kings of Persia said, "You know what? I've heard from the other folks living there; they're right. These Israelites, if they get into power, and and of course we know their power is connected to their God, and so their worship's a big part of that. We need to put an end to this." And they did. They were able to put an end to it. Ezra four twenty three through twenty four. Tells us about that. Ezra 4, starting in verse 23, we read, As soon as the copy of a letter from Artaxerxes was read, uh, this is when they were able to begin again. So they were stopped, and then they could restart. I know it's a little bit complicated. I get a little mixed up myself. But they were stopped from building the temple, and then a new king of Persia rose, and he gave them permission to restart. Restart. And this new uh, king of Persia was king Artaxerxes. And he sent a letter saying, yes, you can begin the work again. And so we read in verse 24 of Ezra chapter 4, thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem. It came to a standstill until the second year of the king Darius. Okay, so now it's under king Darius. I think I got it mixed up there for a second. But chapter 5 is when we read that Haggai and the, pro- the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, these are two prophets you'll find in the Bible. You can go read the letters that they wrote. It would be helpful if you wanted to kind of fill out what's going on on in this uh, particular book of the Bible. They prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, who was over them. And then Zerubbabel and Joshua set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Now, if you go and read some of these prophets, you'll find out that it wasn't that easy. The work had stopped. Then the permission was given to restart, but they didn't go right into it. It actually took, as we just read, the words of the prophet Haggai and Zechariah. It took them ministering to Israel to get them back on track to rebuild the house of God. In other words, to rebuild the temple. What were they doing? They got distracted. We can't continue to build God's house, the temple. What can we do? Let's build our houses. And so they went to work building their own houses. They got distracted. They said, well, we can't do that. We'll just just build our houses. And then they get word that they can return. And instead of returning right away, they keep building their houses. And where do we find that? Again, we have two prophets that wrote to them and encouraged them. Haggai chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to write the reference, you can. Haggai chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, meaning some in Israel are saying to you all, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. But then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. And he says in verse 4, it is time. He says, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? So you get what's happening here? The word has come. You can rebuild Got a new king over Persia? They've given us permission. But everybody was distracted by what they wanted. They were looking at themselves, not looking at God. It is easy to be distracted by what we want, by what we do not have. Our phones are an incredible distraction, are they not? Right? What other people have that we may, we may wish we wanted that thing, and we see it on our phones. And and then that becomes a distraction. The very busyness of our lives can become a distraction. We say yes to too many things, and then we don't have room for God, and it can become a distraction. We have an enemy outside of us that wishes to distract us, and then we've got our own self, our own human being self, that can distract us from the presence of God and doing the things of God. And that distraction can lead to some spiritual lows. So what would it look like to be faithful? What would it look like to keep our faithfulness high even as we may experience these spiritual lows? It is in the words of Jesus to seek the kingdom of God first. To seek his righteousness first. Matthew 6.33. Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, seek the kingdom of God first. If you don't want to be distracted, put God first. Now, this is easier said than done, obviously, but I want to encourage you with something. Here's here's what I want to encourage you to do. You may even write this down in your notes, and your bulletin. Combat the distraction by putting Jesus first and do that first thing. When you wake up in the morning, make it your practice to turn your attention to God before you give your attention to anything or anyone else. Now, you may be saying, Well, that's hard to do. I have a busy life. I got a lot going on. That means I got to wake up earlier. Yes, it does. I I have to do that myself. I got to wake up before the kids get up. Sometimes they're up and moving around. i got to put my headphones in so I can stay attuned to God as I read my Bible and as I pray and I give God my attention. It can be difficult. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm just saying if you want to survive the spiritual lows by being high on faithfulness, put God first. And you'll move through those lows and your relationship with God will grow deeper and richer. But it is a discipline you have to practice. Now, sometimes, let me be honest with you, sometimes we say, God, why don't you hear my prayers? And God is saying, how often are you praying? God, I don't know your will. And God's saying, I put it in a book. How often are you reading it? God, I don't understand you. Well, you can study that same book. And I've given you a Holy Spirit inside of you to learn and grow. Sometimes we blame God for his distance when it's us who walked away. And let me tell you, I'm, I'm not trying to point fingers or bash you like. I am that way, too. I can look up and see, my goodness, what have I done? That's why I have to track all this. Did I read my Bible today? I know it's a checkmark system, and you may be down on that. But listen, did I read my Bible today? Did I do my journal, which is part of my prayer process today? If you take one of these Bible reading plans home, which Amy prepared a new batch for us, and you pick up on this tomorrow morning, first thing, you read your Bible, you pray. It's got a little thing in there you can follow to help you do that. And it's got little boxes you can check. You can follow your faithfulness. You know, when I look and I see... I did all my Bible reading, but man, I'm like three out of five or two out of five this week on journaling. That tells me uh, the reading is there, the prayer is not. God, help me to be more faithful to you. Help me to put you first. Help me not to get distracted by everything going on around me. Help me not to give in to my own desires to sleep in or get on doing something else first thing in the day. Help me to seek your kingdom first. And I'm telling you, A big part of that, maybe the initial step for some of you, is to make your practice the very first thing you do in the morning is to give your attention to God. Don't flip on your phone and give your attention to social media. Don't turn on the TV and give your attention to the news. You know, that sets the pace for the day. What would it look like to give your attention to God first? That. Sets the pace for the day. And if you do that over time, I'm telling you, your relationship with God will grow deeper and richer. And we got to go a little bit faster through disobedience because I took a little too long there. But you see the application when it comes to being distracted. Now let's talk about disobedience. There's something interesting that happens. Now we're going to shift and we're going to start talking about more specifically Judah's time uh, in Jerusalem under Ezra. Ezra is knowledgeable about the word of God. He's a scribe, he's a teacher, he's a preacher. This is his fundamental task is to come back to Jerusalem, set up temple worship because at this point the temple has now been rebuilt. The process is now finished. Now what do they need to do? They need to get in the practice of worshiping God on a regular basis. And that's Daughters As wives for themselves and sons, and have mingled the holy race with the people around them. And the leaders and the officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Ezra says, "When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled." Why would he have such a strong reaction? Because this is why they're in exile. The very thing God's people returned to Jerusalem and began to do again is the very reason why God put them in exile in the first place. God said, I want you to be a holy race set unto yourselves. And Ezra is heartbroken. The results of this uh, can seem (sighs) harsh might be the right word. The suggestion comes from the people, we need to put away these wives. In other words, we need to divorce them. Now that is not something that we should do today. If you have an unbelieving spouse, turn over in your Bible to Corinthians chapter, chapter 7, verse Corinthians, you'll see the Apostle Paul says, Look, if you're, if you're married to an unbeliever, your job is to show them Jesus in your marriage. Don't, don't leave the marriage. This was for a specific place and a specific time for a specific people. Okay, This is not a blanket commandment for us today. But what can we learn from this? What we learn is there was serious action that needed to be taken to cut out the disobedience from their lives. See, now what had happened to the people is they get back to Judah after being exiled. They realize it can be advantageous for us to marry these other women who, who their father may own land. And sure, they worship these other gods, but, but think of the power, the prestige, uh, the, the resources we could have if we intermarry with these other people. Now, here's what they did. Again, we, we learn this not necessarily from Ezra, but from one of the corresponding books That goes along with Ezra. We read that. God's people. Actually. Left their first marriages. What did God's people do? God's people were married to Jewish wives. And then the men would divorce their wives. So that they could then marry. These other people who lived in the land already. That might make it. Might be a. Advantageous kind of relationship. And so they put off the one in order to marry the other. Now, what God says to do here through the people and through Ezra is you're going to have to make some difficult decisions. You have to turn back to me. You've been disobedient. To their credit, they do this. They're willing to do a very hard thing, which is to cut sin out of their life and to put God first. Their disobedience, Ezra had to know, is going to lead to a spiritual dullness. So it's time we return to faithfulness. So here's what it might mean for us. For us, I think it can mean that there are sins in our life that we like to hang on to. There's, there's disobedience in our life that becomes, for us, something we enjoy. We don't want to let go of. It may be sins that other people are aware of and you just keep ignoring them. No, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. Maybe sins that nobody knows about. Might be ashamed if they did know. Let me tell you, when we let sin rule in our life, we are going to feel spiritually dull. We may complain that God feels far away, but the fact might be we walked away from Him, this time not only in being distracted, but now in being disobedient. God said, do this, and I've done the other. God said, don't do this, and I've ignored that command. What would it look like for us to take seriously Leaving behind that disobedience and marching towards being faithful to God that our spirit might be renewed by the Lord. And it would help, I think, if you thought about and prayed about, God, is there something in my life that is keeping from you? Is there some sin in my life that I have not rooted out? And if God gives you a picture of what that is, I want to give you a couple thoughts here. If God gives you a picture of what that is, I want to encourage you to obey the command of God, James five sixteen, to confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. Now, if you're in Jesus, you're already forgiven. But that doesn't mean that.